0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So as we've seen throughout First Samuel, uh, which we get to conclude today, w- what's really taking place throughout these 31 chapters, uh, these, these multiple pages of God's Word, is a tale of, of two kings, King, King Saul and King David. And last week we were in chapter 24, and today obviously we're jumping to chapter 31. So there's a lot that happens in between those two places, right? In between chapter 24 and chapter 31. So let me try and as helpfully and yet as briefly as possible fill in those gaps so that we can wrap up 1 Samuel this morning. So here's what happens. If if you'll remember last week, if you were here, Um, In chapter 24, David had the opportunity to kill Saul, right? Saul uh, has been chasing David throughout the desert, throughout sort of the, the wilderness of Israel. He's been pursuing him. They find themselves in the same cave in the middle of nowhere, right? And Saul goes into that cave by himself to, quote unquote, relieve himself and... David's opportunity has apparently presented itself, right? To to finally be rid of Saul, to kill Saul, to be done with it. And David's men, in fact, encourage him to do that, right? And David declines. We talked about last week how that is essentially a, a, a sign of David's patience, his willingness to wait upon God instead of relying on both his might and sort of the encouragement of his peers, he instead chooses to rely on the promises of God that he would one day be king. So he doesn't take matters into his own hands. Instead, cuts off a piece of, of Saul's robe, and when Saul leaves, he says, look, I had my chance, and I didn't take it. I am not treasonous towards you like you think I am. And you would think that Saul would have sort of learned his lesson, right? Wow, David had a shot and he didn't take it. Great. But in chapter 26, we come across a similar opportunity in that Saul, after some distractions here, there, and everywhere else, decides to pursue David again. He's got it in his mind that David is treacherous, treasonous, pursues David and his 600 or so men with his army of 3,000, and they come to where David is, they set up their camp, and they go to sleep for the night. David and um, one of his one of his companions, Abishai, goes with David into Saul's camp while they sleep. And Saul is in the very center of the camp, surrounded by three thousand of his faithful warrior companions. And David sneaks all the way into the very middle of the camp where Saul is laying. And right next to Saul is his weapon, his spear, and a jug of water. And Abiashar, much like David's companions in the cave, says, This is your moment. Take the spear and pierce Saul through. Or if you won't, let me do it. And David again declines. Instead, he takes the spear from next to Saul's head, and he takes the jug of water, and he leaves the camp. And in the morning, when the camp wakes up, David addresses Saul and again presents for him the evidence that he had an opportunity that he didn't take. And much like the first time, Saul says, gosh, David, (laughs) I'm really sorry. And not only does he say sorry, but then he blesses him. He says, David, surely you are blessed. But of course, I mean, as you can imagine, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? That's how the saying goes. And so although it seems like there may have been some sort of restoration of relationship this morning, the trust between David and Saul is irreparably broken. They'll, they'll never reconcile at this point. And so Saul returns to his home and David takes up camp not... Not only in the wilderness of Israel, but he goes beyond that. He sets up camp. He finds refuge in Philistia. Which is ironic because if you'll remember just a few chapters ago, (laughs) David killed the hero of the Philistines, Goliath, right? In fact, David ends up in Goliath's hometown of Gath. And he spends about a year and four months living there and David's time in Philistia is not a glorious time for him Uh, it's characterized by um, (laughs) it's characterized by deceit it's characterized by faithlessness right he's consistently concerned about whether or not God's promises to him will come true and yet what we'll find out what we'll come to find out is that David will ultimately eventually repent return to God and seek him follow him and what we find out in chapter 28 is that there's this war that's looming. And really, like, it's kind of a war that's been happening throughout the book of 1 Samuel, right? The Philistines are now again at the border of Israel with a great army. And Saul looks out in chapter 28 over that army and he is terrified, utterly terrified of that army. And so he calls on the Lord, the God of Israel. He prays to God. And there is no reply. Just silence. And so what does Saul do? Saul seeks out a medium or a witch or a sorcerer, depending on your translation. And it, specifically, a medium or, or a witch who practices necromancy, which is essentially um, the ability to communicate with the dead, right? So there's this woman sorceress at Endor, and Saul goes to her, and he summons someone. Now, what I didn't tell you earlier is that back in chapter 25, Samuel, the one whom this book is titled for, passed away. And if you remember who Samuel was, Samuel was a prophet, right? And the role of the prophets in Israel was to speak the words of God to God's people, right? So Saul doesn't hear from God in his prayer, but Samuel's dead. So what does he do? He goes to this necromancer and he says, summon Samuel for me. Now, as you can imagine, this um, practice would have been frowned upon by God. Um, <laughs> seeking a, a sorcerer to communicate with the dead, and yet Saul does so. And I know that, you know, in, in certainly in our culture, this idea of the supernatural is typically sort of laughed off, but in this moment, the sorceress is successful. She summons Samuel. And Samuel will have words for Saul, but they're not ultimately words that Saul is going to want to hear. And so Samuel is summoned from the dead. He appears before Saul and he tells Saul these words. He says, you know that you've been cut off and tomorrow you will die at the hands of the Philistines. But it won't just be Saul. It will be Saul and it will be his three sons, including Jonathan. And what we read in Chapter 31 this morning is the spoiler alert, right? That, that Samuel's prophecy comes true from the dead. And so here's, what, here's what's taken place really over the last like six, seven chapters. This is Saul's final descent, and it illustrates for us how Saul viewed God. What we've seen consistently throughout the book of 1 Samuel is Saul, when God's timing is not readily apparent, when his will or his strength does not immediately appear to be with him, he takes matters into his own hands, right? Time and time again, whether it's in chapter 15 facing the Amalekites, whether it's with regards to David and his son Jonathan, whether it's in this moment with regards to not being able To hear from the Lord, he takes matters into his own hands. And what we come to see is sort of the great heights from which Saul has fallen, right? Let's remember that it was in this same book, right? It was in this same book that Saul's royal career begins with a special meal that is prepared by the prophet Samuel, after which Saul goes forth and becomes the royal king of Israel. But now, in chapter 28, he eats his last meal, prepared by a witch, and he goes forth to his certain death. And so for Saul, a lifetime of dishonoring God has led him to the climactic moment of his ruin Like I said first Samuel is really a contrast of two of two kings the current king king Saul and the one who will succeed him king David and so you see David on the other hand though not without his flaws has lived a life honoring to God in obedience when he was faithful, and in repentance when he was unfaithful. In chapter 30, what we come to find out is that David and Saul's situations were really not not that dissimilar, right? Saul in chapter 28 is fearful for his life, right? The Philistine army is looking at him across the valley, and he is terrified that his time has finally come. Well, in chapter 30, we find out that David's life is in danger at the hands of his own men. But we see a different response. In chapter 30, it tells us that David strengthens himself in the Lord his God. And so, where in chapter 30, David looks to God and finds strength, Saul, whose life is also in danger, looks at the hands of the Philistines and he finds no strength. And what we come to find out in 31 is that Saul is then wounded in battle. He takes an arrow. And terrified that the Philistines will torture him, he asks his armor bearer to pierce him through, to, to kill him with his own sword. His armor bearer refuses and so Saul instead falls on his own sword. Puts it in the ground and... And so the tale of two kings concludes. King David, a king who would courageously trust in God and in God's strength, and King Saul, who throughout his life would think little of God and regularly give more weight to his circumstances than to the promises of God. And so Saul, unlike David, becomes this king who vacillates regularly between overwhelming fear. An utterly blinding pride. Back and forth. Back and forth. Threats from the Philistines held little fear for David, but they literally scared Saul to death. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that there's really only two ways to live. We can... Live righteously and faithfully before God, repenting when we fail to live lives that honor him, or we can, like Saul, live unrighteously and faithlessly before God, failing to repent when we live lives that dishonor him. There's no middle ground, right? There's no third character in this. There's no, then there's the guy who rode the fence, right? There's David and there's Saul. And this is my concern today. You see, my fear is that I, and maybe it's just me, my fear is that I too often try to occupy a perceived middle ground where God gets some of His will and I get some of mine and we peaceably sort of agree that that's what's best. Where my opinions and thoughts are considered on the matter, if you will. And what scares me about that, brothers and sisters, is that I see Saul in that. Saul isn't much different, is he? He co opts God when he's useful, but then he ignores him when he doesn't do things his way or in his timing. My fear, brothers and sisters, is that I've co-opted God when he's useful, but ignored him. And he doesn't do things my way. And so I've got this religious sheen, but when push comes to shove, I'm my own master. Saul certainly had a religious sheen. A prophet of God himself had anointed him to be king over Israel. All of the people looked at him as this great hope for their people who would be a king like the kings of other nations who would go in and out before them, who would fight their battles on Their behalf. But when push came to shove, was God king or was Saul? Was God ruler of Israel or was Saul? Was Saul God's man or was God Saul's genie? And so if there's only two ways to live, then there are also only two outcomes. We can follow God and triumph or we can follow ourselves and we can die. God is either enough or He isn't. God is either faithful or He is not faithful. And in the lives of Saul and David, we're being shown what it means to believe or not to believe. And what I want us to be clear about here And notice from the story of these two men is this. Look, David's life was not absent of difficulty or challenge, right? David is God's man, but his life is not absent of difficulty or challenge. And at the same time, Saul, who has been rejected by God, his life is not only difficulty and challenge. He has moments of great triumph. He has moments of great victory. He experiences both the sweetness of life and the bitterness of life, much like David as well, right? Again, we all think of David as the one who conquered Goliath, but we don't think of him as the one who's running into the arms of his enemies because his own people want to kill him. Right? That's David in chapter 30. He's been rejected by Saul, the king whom he served. He's been rejected by the people of Israel because he refuses to take the life of Saul. And he's been rejected by the Philistines because he killed their hero. He has literally no one but God. Both defeat and victory come on the righteous and on the unrighteous. The question that this text is asking us is where we run when those times come. When we're tempted to believe that our way is better, where do we run? Do we run to God and to His Word or do we run to our way? The most efficient, the most expedient solution. In Saul and in David, we see not only the character of both of those options, but we see their outcome. And the good news of Jesus, brothers and sisters, this morning is that Jesus, in his moments of victory and in his moments of deep, deep despair, he ran to God and to his word every single time. And so while David is a foreshadowing of Jesus, David is certainly not Jesus because we know that he fails. He does not run to God every word and his word every time. But Jesus does. So unlike David, unlike Saul, and unlike you and I, Jesus has done this for us. And because Jesus ran to God and his word every time, he has both the right and the kindness that he learned through empathy to invite us into the kingdom on the basis of his good work. You see, Jesus triumphed. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus went into Hades and came back out again precisely because he believed. Because he believed that God was enough. Because he believed that God was faithful. And that's why he prays those famous words in the Garden of Gethsemane we remember them. Not my will, but yours be done. And right, I want us to think about that in that moment, right? Like Jesus, imagine the resources that are at Jesus's literal fingertips, right? Jesus is not just a man, he is God, and he is endowed with all of the powers that belong to God. If there was anyone who could not only take matters into his own hands, but see them borne out successfully, it would be Jesus. And yet in that moment, what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. He falls, he entrusts himself, To the promises of God. That God would restore and redeem his people. That God would do the work that was was required. So that his people might be reconciled unto him. That God would do it. And in that sense, David is the foreshadowing of Jesus. Is he not? By being utterly unwilling to take these matters into his own hands. Now, 2 Samuel will see a whole different side of David that will be utterly helpful. But at least in this moment, we have this great picture of what it means to rely on, to entrust ourselves to the promises of God. And we have not only a picture, but we have an invitation to do the same. And so my prayer, brothers and sisters, both for this church that I love so dearly and for myself, is that we would, with Jesus, find ourselves regularly, both in victory and in defeat, crying out, not my will, but yours be done. Because in that prayer, we will triumph. Even if in that moment, We happen to find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death, as David would say. You see, it's in that prayer that we can fear no evil. Why? Because God is with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning again, God. Grateful. Lord, that we can come before you grateful, Father, um, that you have shown us what righteousness looks like. God, you've shown it to us in the perfection of Jesus, certainly. And you've also shown it to us, God, in the imperfection and yet repentant heart of King David. And so, Lord, we ask, Father, that we would like those who have gone before us, proclaim with hope and with certainty that it is your will, not only that will be done, but that when done is what is best for us. And Lord, that even moments where we're tempted not to believe that, God, that we would respond in faith, that we would see it, Lord, as an opportunity, an invitation. Lord, to find rest in the knowledge that You are a good Father who loves Your children and who has bestowed upon them, us, every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so we thank You, God, that even even when it's not readily apparent, the victory is won. And God, one day we will share a feast meal with you. And it will be a feast unlike anything we've ever seen before. God, we've got a lot of wonderful restaurants in Montrose, but God, there will be nothing like what we will experience at your banquet table. And so Lord, this morning in coming to the communion table, we have not only a sign that that will one day happen, but we also have a seal, we have a guarantee that has come to us by virtue of a broken body that Jesus gave and shed blood that Jesus gave so that we might be invited into that feast, into that place. And so, Lord, we trust you for the victory, even when it's readily apparent, God, that there's nothing that we can contribute, that there's no might within us that can secure that on our own. We proclaim our faith in that this morning. We proclaim our faith in the fact that Christ has died, but that He's risen and that He will come again. And we find rest there and we find strength to approach what life brings. We thank You for all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.